much rather not you wouldn't believe all that i got considering everything i already forgot i've got ways to save the world mixed with things to say to girls i got the wrong words to stupid songs stuck in loops that go all alone welcome neighbor to folk you radio Folk University's talk show, where neighbors share and learn from each other. I am your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. Special welcome today to the first of a series of Folk U radios done in partnership with Cortez Currents. This takes the Folk University model of slow learning, local knowledge sharing, and neighbors sharing with neighbors, and it combines it with Cortez Current's commitment to covering the news most relevant to our communities at this time. Today's show is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, the program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada. On today's show... We are asking the question, are we prepared? Today is 9-11. This is a day many of us associate with disasters, and it brings our focus and attention to the reality of how prepared are we? What are the extreme hazard situations that we may face in our lifetimes? And I think all of us have a new idea of what those may be after this pandemic. And the fires that are burning again in B.C., California, and Oregon, and elsewhere are making it increasingly obvious that as a community, preparing for disaster means preparing for the possibility of wildfire. On today's show, we have representatives from B.C. Coastal Fire Center, and we will later have representatives from the Strathcona Regional District and some local guests, Deborah Zimanek, a forest technician with BA Blackwell, has a little clip that she sent in. And then hopefully, if all goes well with fairies and reception, we will also hear from our very own Mark Lombard about some of the things going on to prepare us through the community for us. So what does all of this mean? Disaster preparedness, the possibilities of wildfire for Cortez, Quadra, and the other surrounding communities, and what is the role that we can play in caring for ourselves as a community and our forests. So my first guest, which I'm really excited to introduce, let's see, this is another one of those moments where we have to hope that everything has gone well. My first guest is Donna McPherson from the BC Coastal Fire Center. Donna, are you with us? I am. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for for joining us. Um, You and I have gotten to have a couple of really fascinating conversations as I've gotten educated enough to bring you and this topic to our community to even know what questions to ask. So I need to thank you both for your time today, but also for taking the time to get me more up to speed. Um, So thank you for being here. And I'm hoping you can start by a little introduction to yourself and your organization. Yes, so I work for the Coastal Fire Centre, and uh, we're located in Parksville on Vancouver Island. Um, This fire centre coordinates wildfire resources throughout the Coastal Fire Centre area, which is all of Vancouver Island, uh, the lower mainland from the water up to Laredo Sound near Tweedsmer Park, and then inland to the height of land on the Coast Mountains, those are the mountains right behind Hope and uh, Pemberton, and it also includes Haida Gwaii and the Gulf Islands as well. I'm a communication specialist, and I help get the information out about wildfires and other program areas that we have, like wildfire, our 
wildfire prevention section. So our prevention section focuses on reducing new wildfire starts, obviously. It also works on reducing excess forest fuels on Crown land and encouraging people to make their homes more resilient to wildfires by promoting FireSmart, which I'm shamelessly going to do because it's so important. So the, the BC Wildfire Centre, the Coastal Fire Centre, is part of the BC Wildfire Service which is part of what used to be called the Forest Service but is now called the FLNRO or the Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations, and that's part of the provincial government. The Coastal Fire Centre itself is divided into six zones, and you've already had uh, Jeff Belcher on your show, and he works for the Coastal Fire Centre but works out of the office in Powell River, and that's the main base for the Sunshine Coast Zone, which uh, is also responsible for the area that includes Cortez Island. We have a similar zone office for the North Island Mid-Coast that's located in Campbell River, and it covers the area that includes Quadra Island. I was thinking a little bit on how I could make you understand what our job is, so I thought I'd start off with what our mandate is. So this is what we're tasked to do by government. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, we deliver effective wildfire management and emergency response support on behalf of the government of BC. We protect lives and values at risk. We encourage sustainable, healthy, and resilient ecosystems. And it surprises people that that's in there. But I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as we go forward. But I first want to talk about response to wildfires because that's the one that people think of when they think of us. So we respond to wildfires in any area outside of fire department jurisdictional areas where they respond to. So that includes Crown land, BC parks, private forest land, community forests outside of fire departments, and some federal land. Um, federal parks has their own fire response uh, group, as does the Department of National Defense on their lands, but we'll always assist if we're asked. And we assist any fire department that asks for help, so we work closely with them during a wildfire. Uh, our people are very adept at very steep slopes. Uh, we can fell danger trees, we have helicopters, we have air tankers, we have this kind of resources that we can help local fire departments with if, uh, if they're struggling with a particular piece of land. But I want to be really clear, our firefighters are wild firefighters, they're not structural firefighters. They don't have the equipment or training to put out structural fires and fire departments do that kind of work. So it's the unfortunate truth of things is that we can't send our people into homes to um, help with a house fire, we can only prevent the fire from moving into the forest. Wildfire management, though, is kind of a broader term, and it includes reducing fuel loading on Crown land uh, via prescribed burning, for example. And this is all about altering the fuel in the forest uh, back to more natural conditions that would exist if we didn't interfere with natural fire. Uh, once the fire, uh, the fuel in the area is reduced, then these areas that have uh, experienced fire don't carry fire as easily and we use them during fire response because they actually will stop or steer a fire um, that does occur naturally. I do want to start with talking about how uh, not all fire is bad and we do have, I do have an example, we're applying prescribed fire onto the Cowichan Gary Oak Preserve in partnership with the Nature Conservancy Canada and they have a great website. You can go have a look at what their intent is, but their intent is to help restore these lands to an, a more natural state. Um, removing fire from that landscape over time is encouraged invasive weeds, which we're reducing plants 
native plants like uh, the camas lily and the chocolate lily. And they also wanted to provide forage for deer, and they wanted to re reintroduce the western bluebirds. So that was what they wanted to do. Um, they approached us for help, and what we do as an organization is that we periodically apply fire to that landscape, generally in the fall when they ask us to do so. There's something called a prescription uh, that applies to that land, and it defines what's wrong with the land and how the land needs to recover and what's the intention. Um, we as an organization do understand fire and how fire moves and what type of temperatures we need for the fire to be effective to meet the prescription and at the same time, of course, remain controllable. The other part of uh, prescribed fire is we follow venting uh, requirements to keep smoke at a minimum for the people that are in the area. Sometimes these prescriptions are a little bit more for fire response, but we always work with whoever is the land manager to do the most good for the forest. Um, we may not burn during nesting season, for example, if part of what we're trying to do is help uh, restore the ecosystem. Um, if you want to understand how fire works in a fire ecology, I, I really recommend that people go and, and have a look at that TED Talk uh, by Paul Hesburgh. He's a forester that worked most of his life in forests in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. The TED Talk is about five years old, but it actually foreshadows what's going on across the border right now. Our forest professionals are really aware of these facts, and, and we're working hard to return fire appropriately to BC forests because forests obviously don't stop at the borders, and we have the same problem in forests throughout BC. Uh, another thing you may hear is you may hear us talk about the term modified response, and you may wonder what that means. Uh, it doesn't mean we're not doing anything. Sometimes we make decisions about the benefits of having fire on the forest during a wildfire as well. We don't do it if the fire has a substantial risk to people or infrastructure, but we consider the pros and cons really early in responding to fires, and we consult with land managers really early. And I'm going to use an example here. So a few years back, we had a lightning fire on East Redonda Island, and the island is sort of horseshoe-shaped with one side of it being an ecological reserve. So this is crown land that was set aside to preserve representative and natural ecosystems, and it's also uh, used for uh, research and education as well. And that's where the fire was. So we worked with the land manager to figure out what the best next step going forward with. Um, we said to them for us to put out the fire would require us to build a road because we need to move machinery in. The land managers felt that this would be particularly hard on the on the forest. It would bring in too much vehicle access after to the land, those lands after the fire was out. For example, people use ATVs and motorcycles. It would have chewed up the landscape, and that's something that they didn't want to do. So we were the professionals here. We kind of understand what the fire could do, um, and we expected that the fire, if it was allowed to burn, uh, would mostly be a lower intensity ground fire for the rest of the summer. It wouldn't get up into the trees, it would just run along underneath the, the forest canopy uh, and help actually clear out some and rejuvenate for some of the thicket that had formed underneath the trees. And that the land managers liked that idea because they were trying to get the forest back to a natural state and fire was natural for that area. So we modified our approach. And what we did instead is we built a control, a control line outside of the reserve to prevent the fire from leaving the one side of the island. And we kept an eye on it. We sent crews when the fire was coming up to the control line to keep it secure and make sure it didn't get across. 
and periodically if we thought that a spot on the fire was just getting a little bit too hot and it had the chance that it would go up and start damaging the trees, we'd dump water on it. Um, and uh, usually we used a helicopter to do that. Actually, we always used a helicopter to do that. So it would just do it periodically when it was needed. The fire continued to burn for the rest of the summer right up until winter when we got the winter rains. Sometimes it smoked a little bit, sometimes a lot. But overall, it was beneficial for the forest. And I will really want to point out that fire is a natural rejuvenating process for natural forests, and that's what we did. And not all fire is bad. So... Da- uh- Donna, Go ahead. I, in one of our conversations, you had talked to me a little bit about um, this and, and how in uh, many of the forests in this region that fires naturally for, the, for a healthy forest would have burnt like every 10 to 20 years. Um, and I was really struck by that number because I guess if I had thought about it before, I'd always thought that fire was something that maybe would you know, we had to deal with every hundred years or something like that. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about um, about both idea of fire as healthy and also this um, really interesting idea of using fire as, as almost like a medicine, getting a prescription to use fire as a medicine to restore the forest health and protect our communities? So... The fire is natural to basically all forests in BC with one uh, very unusual exception, and that's the ones that they have like up in Haida Gwaii where they've got uh, old growth forests that the turnover forests have um, have to renew themselves in some way. They have to open the canopy. They've got to clear out uh, debris that they don't need. And in the rainforest, it's done usually by wind. A blowdown goes through, it, it blows trees down, and then the forest starts to renew from that. Everywhere else, it's usually done by, fo- by fire in a natural state if we weren't interfering with anything. What's different is that how long it would take for a particular piece of land to have a fire on it. The fires that are in the interior of BC, the ones, um, you know, like around Cache Creek and Kamloops, um, they have a fire cycle of around uh, 10 to 15 years. So if if nature was allowed to do what nature wanted to do, there would have been a fire through there in that amount of time. And those, as I said, these natural fires aren't the huge wall of flame that everybody thinks about. They're a, a low intensity, they stay on the ground, and they go underneath the trees and they basically get rid of all of that debris on the bottom of the forest floor. It's sort of like housekeeping. Um, as you come to the coast, uh, the cycles are a little bit longer, so they may be 25, 30, 40 years, depending on where you live. But fire, it was natural, and by by eliminating this type of fire on the forest, year after year after year after year, the debris builds up. The forests get really thick. Um, it's hard for the animals to move through them. It's hard for the different species to be in, be there as well. Some of them like shade, but some of them don't like shade. So over time, the biodiversity uh, lessens. Uh, the animals lessen because the animals need the plants, and then basically the forest turns into something that we call stagnant. Um, at, that's the time when a forest would normally renew things, if you will. Uh, that's really fascinating. Um, and if it's not too much then to ask, can you tell us a little bit about the process? If we were to want to get a prescription for our community forest, um, which we've talked a little bit about that structure, what does it look like to um, get to the place where a community 
could even begin to think about using fire to restore the health and protect the community? Oh, I thought I'd first start to sort of define for you what a community forest is, because it actually is something. Um, a community forest is a tenure for Crown land, so it's still owned by the Crown, but there's an agreement that's entered into um, by people and is strongly influenced by the local community, what it is that they want to do in their forest. Um, some uh, some of the community forests, for example, they wanted to put in bike trails. It, that was something that was important for them. Um, they get the revenue from the trees that are felled in the process of actually building that bike trail, and then they sell those trees to offset the cost of the work. So th there is a forester that's in charge of that tenure, and they usually work for or they report to local government in some way. And then the local government works with the land manager, and remember it's still Crown land, and the land manager is the uh, Flinrow Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations District staff. But their, their obligation is to fill, fulfill the intent of the overall plan for that forest. So you have input to what your plan is for your community forest. And if part of your plan is to renew it back to a more natural um, forest, then those land managers will try to f figure out what's the best way of doing it. Is it through prescribed fire or is it more of a mechanical treatment that sort of mimics what prescribed fire would do by doing pruning and thinning and, and felling the trees to open up the canopy? Then the district office uh, staff would work with um, work to develop what's called a wildfire risk reduction plan. So that's the purpose that we're talking about, about altering the forest into a different state. And they would seek the funding and they would manage the project. And again, with input from local community and, and the forester to try to figure out the best way forward. If uh, prescribed fire was part of the choice of all of this, um, very, it's very possible that our people would be in, uh, involved because we're kind of the expert in that business. Um, mechanical treatments can go ahead without us being involved in. There's a bunch right now in the Sea to Sky Highway that are, followed this whole process. It wasn't community forest land, it was crown land. But they followed exactly the same process and they developed the funding and they've got people doing the work um, of doing the clearing and the thinning um, without our intervention at all. And um, this may be, uh, if, you know, <laughs> take, take, steer us another way if I'm taking us too off, um, off the uh, path, but this maybe is um, where we can talk a little bit about the role of communities, um, both in influencing the, the plans for their, for their forests, but also in coming up with funding for things like FireSmart um, and et cetera. So I, th I think um, Sean is coming on, and he can talk a great deal about what the uh, local uh, government, which is the regional district, is doing on your behalf. Um, there is funding that is available um, to help uh, communities uh, become fire smart if, if the community wants to create an event or do it as more of a broader, uh, broader scale on private land. There is funding available for that. Uh, it can cover things like chippers or, or help with getting the work done, whatever it is, the work that needs to be done. Um, and we strongly encourage that, that the more communities that we can get fire smart in the provinces, it's just a good thing for us. Um, it's, it's much easier to fight a fire from a place where the, the community has done their fire smarting 
um, we we have better outcomes, for example, because we have we just have a place to fight from, and it also makes the homes more resilient to the wildfire environment, if you will. So it 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 lessens our 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 focus. We don't have to suddenly stop what we're doing, fighting the fire, and focus instead on protecting homes because the homes have a certain strength on their own. Um, we have the ability to use things like it's called a structural protection unit, which is a fancy name for basically a bunch of pumps and hoses and sprinklers that can be installed to protect homes in the event of a wildfire. Um, if the fuel loading is too heavy in the area, those don't work, so they're often not used. So it, it just gives more strength to the community by using the, the, the various fire, fire smart uh, principles that are available. And um, you talked about fuel loading. Can you um, talk a little bit more about what that actually means? What does that look like when we're looking at our forests here? Well, again, I, I really encourage people to go have a look at this Paul Hesburgh uh, video. It's a little 15-minute video, and it actually shows you photos from the early 1920s that are taken from uh, U.S. forestry lookouts. So that was what the forest used to look like. And then he takes you right to the same place, and he says, this is what it looks like now. And you can see it. You can look at it. Um, natural forests are what we call a mosaic. So there's some areas that have already experienced wildfire in recent years. There's some areas that haven't. Um, there's a difference with the few, uh, forests on the north-facing slopes and the south-facing slopes and at the tops of mountains and at the bottoms of mountains. So it's more of a, a patchwork of different types of forests that make up the total of the forest. That's what a healthy forest is like. This, um, what it looks like when you have an overgrown forest is you've got a, a row of never-ending trees. The trees are almost all the same age, and it's underneath the, the trees is almost the same type of stuff, the same type of bushes and shrubs and fallen branches and needles and leaves um, throughout. There's no difference everywhere. It's just uh, like a uniform forest um, structure. That makes forest fires carry because there's no breaks. It makes them get to a certain temperature because it's, it's got a lot of fuel in there for it to burn. There's a lot of stuff on the ground. It's like the ground is covered in kindling. So it makes a, a higher temperature fire than a, a, a regular ground fire would. And it, it has a tendency to involve the trees right from the ground on up to the tops of the trees because the... Um, the forest canopy is such that it'll climb from tree to tree. It'll find a sick tree. It'll catch another tree on fire, and it'll crawl, crawl its way right up to the very tops of the trees. That doesn't happen in a natural forest as easily because the forest fires have a tendency to stay right on the ground, and they're just noodling along underneath the forest, taking out all the debris that shouldn't be there. So when, <laughs> when I hear this, I start to um, get fairly nervous because I look around just at where I live, um, which is on Cortez Island, but also many of the places I visit and know on Quadra Island and the surrounding area. And whereas we've done a okay job at our own property, our neighbors next door um, never come and there's, they've done nothing. It's mostly just forested uh, with a lot of underbrush. And then we're surrounded um, up to you know, quite a bit of our neighborhood is is crown land, um, and which is run by the community forest. And there's a lot, a lot of underbrush. I think you called that the never-ending forest. And it really does feel that 
way. And so I'm wondering, um, and it, you've addressed this a little bit, but also uh, uh, Mark Lombard, who manages our community for us, is going to come on later, and he's been texting me, and he wanted, he's getting really excited about some of the things that you're presenting and these ideas, I think. Uh, I'm speaking for, for Mark. I'm the one using the exclamation marks. But um, he also wants to know what, um, w how could fire or prescription, uh, like using fire as a prescription, or how do we go about getting prescription and funding for our community forest here? Can you lay it out really specifically, and then s and then maybe move from there to what we can do in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods where they're not crown land? And I think I think that's a really important thing is people need to understand that while there are, then there certainly are mechanisms to deal with crown land, and I strongly encourage your, your community to think about that, and um, that gives you a voice into how that forest is going to be handled. But w taking care of our own homes is also very important, and even just one home alone changed will make a big difference. Um, I thought I would maybe give a little bit of a talk about why I think FireSmart is so important because it's, it's um, I have actually a personal take on it a little bit. Um, so this, this is basically my own perspective and it's also what it means to firefighters. But here's my experience. In 2009, that was my first year as a fire information officer and, and that was the role where I went to go to one of the larger fires somewhere in the province because we have uh, incident management teams that go anywhere. And my first uh, fire was the McClure Barrier Fire, which was the fire north of Kamloops. It uh, burnt uh, 72 homes, uh, were lost to that fire. It burnt up the town's livelihood, which was a sawmill that actually altered the town for the future because the business that was there that used to keep people employed and families there was gone. So they had to leave and find work elsewhere. And it caused uh, 3,800 people to be evacuated, and some of these people were evacuated up to three times. It was a very, very upsetting time for the community. Um, the fire surrounded the community basically on all sides. It burned very hot one afternoon, and that's when it did the most destruction for the homes. And then it just continued around the, the community and then up one side of the mountain and curved around back. So I remember driving into the town of McClure, and while the people were still evacuating, we were in the process of setting up a camp in town because we didn't want people to come back to the town and be frightened that we weren't there. So we thought, well, we'll just build a camp at the rodeo grounds. We made the arrangements for that. We took over the rodeo grounds, and we eventually wound up with a 1,000 people in that camp working on the fires that were this one big fire that was surrounding the community. And we stayed there. Um, well, we stayed there until it rained. There was a different group of people through uh, through this process, but I got to stay there for the next month and a bit. The road that I drove down was where the homes were burnt as I was moving into the community, and it was awful to see. It was really a terrible thing. But what kept striking me was that all the homes were burnt, and I, I think people have seen photos of this before, these aerial photos of this one house burnt, another one's burnt, one's not. Another one's burnt, another one's not, another one's not, and one's burnt. And it just, I kept wondering why. Why did that house make it and that house didn't? Why did that family have such hard uh, hard luck or, or a hard future to face? And that one was more or less unsinged. Like, what's the difference between the two? 
And what I found out was that the homes that stood had fire smart principles applied to them. And this was this was way back in 2009. Um, there's a little bit of a history behind FireSmart. It, it started in California as FireWise, and it started in 1997 for exactly this reason, for exactly the same purpose, to discover and share why some houses burn and others don't. And uh, Cal Fire uh, was partnered with two universities in the area to do the science, and they built a building, and they have this building, and they build houses inside of it. That's the size of the building. And then they blow sparks around inside of them. They, they have inside the homes, they've got cameras and sensors, you name it, they've got it. They build fire-smarted houses, and they build non-fire-smarted houses, and then they try to get them on fire. And they watch how the fire approaches the homes and why it, why it succeeds in one case and why it doesn't succeed in another. And the BC Fire Smart program uses that knowledge. So it's the same knowledge that's part of all of this is what the BC Fire Smart program is based on. But really, how does it work? So a Fire Smart property is about the landscaping or the land that's around the home. It gives, as I mentioned, it gives us a place to fight the fire from, and it gives us a fighting chance to prevent the approaching wildfire from burning down structures. It also alters the heat and intensity of the wildfire that's closest to your home. So as the fire moves into the area that you have control over, the heat of the fire drops, the intensity of the fire drops. It drops hopefully back from a crown fire in the rare instance you've got a crown fire, drops back to the ground. And that's the area that we can, that's what we can fight close up and personal is when it's down on the ground. A fire smart home, so we're talking about the structures of the home, like the roof and the siding and the like, makes your home resilient to the wildfire environment. It makes it stronger, so it's, it repels the sparks and the heat, and it removes uh, the secondary um, ignition sources like firewood piles too close to the homes and those kind of things. And the other big point about it is that it's easy for homeowners to do themselves, and there's a checklist on bcfiresmart.ca that you can look at that just takes you around your property and gives you different tips and ideas for clearing out some of the f debris that's close to your home and strengthening your home as well. We of the BC Wildfires Service, as I mentioned, do fire smarting on the landscape level on Crown Land, and we work with our land managers, and this might be prescribed fire or modified response fires, or it could mean mechanical thinning, like felling trees and opening up the canopy, limbing trees, whatever it is. So all of those things are part of why I so strongly believe in fire, fire smart, and Sean can talk more about this um, and to help your community come together to fire smart on a broader scale. And he can talk to you about what kind of funding uh, you can look to and what kind of help you can do, and also tips that other communities have done that has made a difference for getting this kind of thing off the ground. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, and do you have examples of um, communities that you hold up as really positive or fires that have happened and then um, been uh, like kept at bay because of FireSmart um, being used in a more strategic way? Well, we do. We've worked with a lot of different communities that have applied this uh, to their area. There's a, quite a group of them in the Duncan area that have done really, really well. 
Um, and there's other ones that in the interior where the fuels are quite flashy have worked as well. And we have had fires that have come up to those areas. And as I said, we, you can observe the difference in the fire. It'll be, you know, doing, have a certain fire activity, whatever it is. And then it hits these areas of land and it just drops down. It's just like, whoosh, it goes to the ground. It calms down the fire behavior. We, we rank the fires from one to six and six is when it's a, you know, the photo ops that you see the news have, those great big walls of flame where everything's burning, including the air above it. It's, those are very rare, thank goodness, but um, it goes, that's the highest it would go. And then it goes down to almost a fire that people don't even recognize as being a fire. It's just smoking ground because fire can burn underground as well. Uh, we still recognize that as a fire. If there's any smoke at all, we go after it. But uh, in it, as a fire moves, let's say it's burning um, what we would call rank four, so that would be a very vigorous ground fire with uh, some involvement of trees. It's not a wall of flame. It just burns the occasional sick or, or susceptible tree. When it hits an area that's been fire-smarted, it'll drop right down to the ground, and it'll be maybe ankle height and smoking ground. So it, it just gives us that ability to um, fight the fire better and more effectively. Um, and it really, it, it is vital for people to do that kind of work. So um, in my developing understanding of BC Coastal Fire Center and the kinds of support you can offer, it looks like you can help communities um, in their in their understanding of fire and how maybe even and their understanding of how to prepare uh, for the health and create the health of their forest um, by either using fire or using other techniques to prevent out of control wildfires. Um, and then there's also the helping communities to understand and and organize around getting fire smart. And then there's also the sending in teams. Uh, when there is a wildfire, do I is that right? Do I have that more yeah. or less? Yeah, pretty good, pretty well. Um, again, we we do have um, things that we do as as we respond to a fire, um, and and that might be something that people want to know a little little bit about as well. I can and I can talk to that uh, because we, I, I think people don't quite understand what it is we do and how much resources you have. So in 2015, we had a really busy fire season on the coast. That was one of our busiest ones. And we had people on the coast from around BC, so around the province. Plus, we had people from Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, the Yukon, Australia, South Africa. I think I got all of them. And they were here to help. So our thought map sort of is if the zone doesn't have it, the fire center finds it for them, and that would be within our fire center. We'd move resources around quite easily. If the fire center doesn't have it, then we go to the province, um, the provincial wildfire uh, response center in Kamloops. They find it in the province for us. If the province doesn't have it, then that same group will reach out to the Canadian organization and get it somewhere in Canada. If Canada doesn't have it, then the same organization reaches out to the world. And we, we go looking for professional firefighters that can do the job here on the coast um, in the fuels that we have, in the terrain that we have. 
so all of that's very important uh, to get the resources here. So I, I guess really what I wanted to get across to people is that you're not alone. You don't have to worry that there isn't enough resources in the local zone if you've got two fires because we just bring them in and we deal with it. But I also thought it might be a little bit interesting, and correct me if I'm starting to go too long here, Amanda, because I have a tendency to prose on, but I thought it might be interesting to talk about the process about what happens when a forest fire is reported and, and what happens next. So let's say you see a column of smoke, and of course you immediately report it to our reporting center, which is 1-800-663-5555 or star 5555 on cell phones. And you, the phone call is picked up by the reporting Victor, uh, center in Victoria, and they'll ask you things like your location, what you're looking at, what direction you're looking at, and what color the smoke is, and that's important to know. As soon as they hang up with a click of a button, we get an alert um, here in Parksville. Uh, if there's a chime that goes off, the dispatcher picks up all the information that uh, was given to, to them by you, and uh, that's given to the officer that is in the fire center to decide what the next thing to do. And what that officer will do will figure out which zone it's in and they'll send the appropriate uh, resources, and that could be crews, aircraft, air tankers, whatever, based on what they expect the fire behavior will be for that day. So that's based on how dry the forest is and how, what the temperature is and the wind speeds and all of those kind of things. And the reports that we get, smoke color tells us an awful lot about the fire that we're looking at. When the crews get to the fire, they analyze what's going on, and they report back to the fire center. And if they need more stuff, they just ask. Uh, they know what they're looking at, and we rely on them to tell us what they need. We also involve the zone staff because they'll be a really good font of uh, local knowledge, and they alert other people if needed, like if the fire might result in impacting people. Uh, and then the crews work on the fire until they're comfortable that it's not going anywhere. Either it's out or it's under control. Um, and, and being under control means that they have control lines or established or there's natural barriers that are enough to prevent the fire from growing, and that's what under control means. Being held means the fire's not expected to grow, but they haven't got full control yet, so it goes from out of control to being held to under control to out. And um, this year so far, there's been no fires on Cortez Island, which we're thankful for, but there was one fire on Quadra Island. It was a half a kilometer north of Clear Lake, it was started by lightning on August the 2nd, and we sent a crew by helicopter that day, and more crews and equipment were shuttled over by helicopter for the rest of that day. They established a hose lay from Clear Lake, which is a series of pumps, hoses, and bladders to move water into the area. Um, the fire was 0.7 of a hectare in size. The crews got it under control by the end of the day, and they overnighted on the fire because, you know, ferry schedules and helicopters can't fly at night. The next day they got up and they went back and they patrolled the fire and they only found three smokes in the interior of the fire that they weren't able to get the first day, so they put those out. It was patrolled again on the 4th. No smokes were found on that day and they were able to call it out on August 5th. And that's pretty typical for most fires. Um, the most uncommon type is that wall of flame. Um, most of the fires on the coast are a ground fire and they're put out and so far we've had 120 fires in within the Coastal Fire Center, and they're mostly like this. We usually have about uh, 175 fires a year, so we're down a little bit, um, and that's due to less lightning, less human-caused fires, and a great soggy May and June, which kept the forest pretty healthy and hydrated for most of the summer. 
things are drying out now, but we have the advantage of the shorter daylight hours that are helping the fire uh, because it responds to heat and wind and it's cooler at night. So how do people find um, where fires are burning right now um, and what the risk is in their area? So we have lots of ways people can find out about it. Um, Our website is bcwildfire.ca, and it has a map people can look at, and there's a just they can see if there's a wildfire near them, and it has a danger class overlay that they will show them how dry or not it is in the forest. It also has our prohibitions on it, so um, they can understand what kind of fire uh, is being allowed. They can also go there to find out uh, information about the new mobile app that we have that can be downloaded onto smartphones. And you use the store on your phone, the, the Google Store or the Apple Store for Android phones, and it's called the BC Wildfire app. And people can set that uh, a location near their island, for example, and then have a notification sent to them via email if there's a fire in the area. And you spoke a little bit about prohibitions. What happens if we see somebody having a dangerous fire or having a fire outside of the times when that is allowed? Um, we live you know, pretty far out here without a lot of uh, police support and that kind of thing. So what do you recommend when you see people who, or when you have people who are worried about um, fires being that are against the rules? Okay, well, first of all, I'd like to say that our prohibitions apply to all lands outside of local government open fire bylaws. So if where you're living doesn't have an open fire bylaw, our prohibitions apply. We put in and remove prohibitions based on science. It's not date-driven. I can't tell you when the next one will be or when we're going to lift what we've got. We monitor the dryness of the forest and the upcoming weather, and we also monitor the types of fire starts we're getting, like if backyard burning is causing a forest fire in the spring or campfires in the summertime. When a prohibition is put on, it's a really big, broad brush for us. So you may have a prohibition when it's pouring rain where you are, but that's the way it has to be. Anybody who's seeing illegal burning or a wildfire, we encourage them to call that same number that I talked about before. That's the reporting center at 1-800-663-5555 or star 55 on cell phones. Or you can also uh, use that new mobile app to report as well. We'll either respond to the wildfire or we'll send a report on to one of the two enforcement agencies that uh, enforce our prohibitions, and that's the conservation officers uh, out of the Ministry of Environment can do it, and so can the compliance and enforcement people out of the forest lands and natural resource operations. And um, they will um, either, they will come, they'll investigate the fire, and, and they'll deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. And um, I just want to, uh, it, it's been very reassuring talking to you today because I had always been under the impression previously that if there was a fire on Cortez, at least, um, I didn't know about Quadra, but if there was a large wildfire fire on Cortez, that it would, that we would not get um, backup support um, from, you know, help from wildfire fighter support. Um, So I'm really pleased to know that that is not the case. (laughs) Um, But if things were to get bad enough, and what does even bad enough mean, how do we get to the point of evacuation? Who calls that? And Well, let's say it is worse than that, and evacuation is needed. So if a wildfire starts really close to people, and there isn't a lot of time in it, 
we, the BC Wildfire Service, may do something called a tactical evacuation. And this was done this spring near Squamish, up the Squamish Valley Road. A fire started immediately beside a, a community. It was human-caused. It was growing really quickly in slash, which is an area with lots of debris on the ground, usually from logging. It was really hot. It was really dry. There was a wind, and it threatened some homes. So we, along with the RCMP, helped evacuate people out in a hurry. This wasn't graceful at all. This was a hurry-up-and-get-to-safety kind of thing. So we were just moving people out of the way, getting them away from the fire and getting them to an area where we didn't think that there was any risk to them personally, and it, it was hard on the people. We don't like doing that, and we don't do it very often. Usually what's more common is we do something called a strategic evacuation, and those are done by local government, and certainly Sean from the Strathcona Regional District will follow up with this for you when he talks next. But we we work with these local governments. We tell them what's going on. We tell them what we think the fire will do in the next uh, a little bit of time. And they decide what's the next thing that should be done to keep people safe and to take the next step. In, in the previous example, our tactical evacuation was turned into a strategic evacuation in that fire near Squamish later in the day. And their strategic evacuation was a little bit bigger because it included people that, while they weren't immediately threatened, it had the potential of closing their only road to their home. And this impacts the ability of ambulances and help to come to people that might be suffering from medical distress. So this is something that the uh, people that help people, which is your local government, have to consider when they, they make their decision on how big they want to do it and when they want to do it. Thank you. That's um, uh, scary and interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, I know it's scary and interesting at the same time, but what you have to understand, and, and really listen to Sean when he talks to you, there's an incredible group of people in your local government that are are thinking about the worst-case scenarios, and they're trying to create plans that would serve your people the best, and supporting them and getting involved and adding your voice is the best way of making that if anything happens, whether it's from wildfire or some other disaster, that the people in your area are are cared for in the way that you would like to be cared for. So do get involved in that conversation with Sean. I think it's really important. This is a good uh, wrap-up. And I am also, on that note, I'm going to ask you if there's – so we're – so as we hang up with you, um, which we do lots of things at one time on the air here, at CKTZ 89.5 FM, we're, so we're going to go immediately to a clip by Deborah Zimanek, who's a forest technician with BA Blackwell and Associates. So my understanding is that um, groups like organizations like Blackwell and Associates, Associates they do the science that is needed to create the, as you call them, prescriptions for communities who want to fire smart their forests. Is that, is that am I understanding that right? Pretty much, pretty much. Um, these, these types of organizations have professional foresters, and they'll do the research and study the uh, frequency of fire, for example, in the areas. They, they study where it's most likely for the ignitions to happen. Um, some communities, for example, have large recreational areas and maybe the fire starts there. Lightning doesn't happen everywhere, but they may be in a place where lightning does cause uh, a lot of fires. So that kind of research is done by the, the, the sciencey people that work for these organizations. 
And then they also work toward, you know, okay, well, so let's say the fire is going to likely to start here and move in this direction because that's the way the prevailing winds are. Then what could be done to alter the landscape to break up the fuels and uh, make everything come out the way we want it to come out? That's a, thank you. That's a, a much better <laughs> introduction <laughs> than I could have done on my own. So um, thank you so much. Donna, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge. Um, and I, I feel like knowledge in this case, and as in so many cases, helps us to feel a lot more, um, to feel safer, to feel like we actually can create a plan as a community and are not just at the whim of things, forces out of our control. So thank you so much for, for providing that education and that um, comfort to our community. Okay. And, and thank you very much for having me on your, your show, Amanda. I appreciate that. And I want to just let listeners know that Donna has agreed to continue to listen to our show so that if we get callers or questions um, for her that other people can't answer, that she will text or come back on to answer those. So um, thank you uh, also for that. And listeners, we're going to be going to a clip here momentarily. Um, and while that happens, if you have questions that you want to us to bring to Donna um, or later to Sean or Mark Lombard, uh, you can call in and ask them. That is at 250-935-0200 or you can email us at the letter U at folku, that's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. So now... I am going to do that uh, bit where I'm talking to you and hopefully um, turning us to a clip at the same time. So as we just mentioned, the clip we're going to hear was pre-recorded by Deborah Zimanek, who is a forest technician with BA Blackwell and Associates. Uh, and this is a, uh, an or these are scientists who help to create prescriptions and to look at fire, um, how we might actually make our forest healthier. So uh, they were, she and her colleagues were not able to join us live today. So very kindly, they uh, sat down to record themselves um, and just sort of guess some of the things that we might be um, asking. So this is a very short clip. And again, while we're listening to this, if you have questions that you want us to answer, email or call in with those. Uh, and let's see, I'm going to... Community Wildfire Protection Plans, or CWPPs, were created in BC as a response to the 2003 wildfire season, which impacted many communities in BC, especially in the interior. CWPPs are provincially funded and are completed by forest professionals who assess the crown land around a community from a wildfire risk perspective. The outcomes of a CWPP include maps of local fire threat, values at risk, and a list of action items that local governments can apply in order to increase the community resilience to wildfire. These action items can be grouped into three categories, fuel breaks, changes to planning and development procedures, and fire smart initiatives. For example, the chipping program that took place on Cortez Island this summer. The action items for Cortez Island and Clahoose First Nation as a result of this CWPP will focus on fuel breaks and fire smart initiatives. I want to note that fuel breaks are for wildfire risk reduction and they don't mean that all the trees are removed. Usually these breaks are 100 to 300 meters wide 
and they buffer the edge of residential neighborhoods or main roads that are important to the community from an evacuation or access point of view. Um, and in these fuel breaks, smaller diameter trees in the understory are removed, lower branches are pruned, and surface fuel that's lying on the ground, like uh, logs and uh, twigs and branches, are removed. So the objective is not to stop a fire entirely, but to reduce the chance of a fire igniting and to significantly slow the spread of a fire were it to occur. This also allows fire crews time to come in and react. Much of Cortez Island is older Douglas fir forest that has a low to moderate wildfire risk. However, some areas like Siskin Lane, Whaletown Commons, and certain areas of the community forest have higher wildfire risk, and those areas are good candidates for fuel break treatments. The community forest will be very important in planning and implementing these treatments. So to develop the CWPPs for Cortez Island and Clahoose First Nation, we spent six days on Cortez Island in July and we collected data on forest hazard. While we were there, we also assessed the homes and critical buildings like the school and community centers for fire smart status. We met with Mark Lombard from the community forest and Eli from the fire department, as well as Tina Wesley, the emergency coordinator for Clahoos Nation, to discuss emergency preparedness and to learn a bit more about community priorities. Oh. Sorry about that. <laughs> you are listening to Folk U Radio. This is Folk University's talk show where neighbors share and learn from each other. I am your host, Amanda O'Fox Gillespie. We just heard a little clip from Deborah Zimanek, forest technician with BA Blackwell and Associates, uh, who came out to look at the Cortez forest in particular and to see what we need to do to get a little bit more fire ready here. We just heard from Donna McPherson from the BC Coastal Fire Center. And next, we are going to hear um, from Sean Koopman with the Regional District. Sean, are you there? I am here. Wow, I'm always really excited when it all works out. Um, so, Sean, thank you so much uh, for for tuning in today, for sharing your information um, with us, and for all the time that you have given me to help put together this show for the community so that we could get a little bit smarter about um, particularly about wildfire, but really about being prepared for all sorts of hazard situations. Um, so welcome. And will you start by telling us a little bit more about you and your role and the organization um, as you see it? Sure. So under BC's Emergency Program Act, every local authority has to have an emergency program division that looks at ways of notifying residents, providing essential services during an emergency, writing, coordinating, exercising, updating emergency plans. The emergency program and the Strathcona Health Network are the two regional, truly regional programs that the district operates, meaning that the four electoral areas, the four villages of Tassas, Savalas, Sayward, and Gold River, as well as the city of Campbell River, all pay in to the service. So whereas you know, most of 
my coworkers only provide services for the electoral areas, the planning, the parks. I get to go everywhere from Reed Island to Cayuca Chiclet, First Nation, and working with volunteers, staff, and focusing on our main hazards to, for that worst-case scenario piece. And um, can you talk a little bit more about um, what what we're doing right now uh, on Cortez, on Quadra, if you know about it, to uh, to help prevent that worst case scenario? Yeah, if we're talking about wildfire, and this is a good place to start because Donna alluded a couple times during her talking and one i don't talk as quickly or as much as her i will actually take a breath every minute or so to let you to give you a chance to chime in uh, i've got to drive out just listening to her go there i don't know how she did it but uh, i think a lot of the question is you know what are the grants that are available what is the regional district doing so there is an upcoming intake of the 2021 Community Resiliency Investment Grant, which has changed this year in regional districts, can apply for $50,000 for base funding for the fuel management piece, and then an additional $50,000 per electoral area. So as of 4.30 p.m. today, it'll be live on the web. But what I will be proposing to the Electoral Area Services Committee next week, specific to Cortez Island, because our Electoral Area Services Committee will have to endorse it on their September 16th meeting. Then it goes to the full board of directors on October 7th. And if they pass the resolution of support, the regional district applies for it. Uh, so what I'm proposing for fuel management on Cortez Island is about 10 hectares on the Hanks Beach Park to really serve as a, an educational fire smart area. It's definitely a low-risk area, but it's also highly visible, so it would be a good place to put some signage and education about the fire smart principles. Uh, 11 hectares around the Squirrel Cove area, 11 hectares around the Carrington Bay area, and for the other pieces of it, uh, incident command training and fire entrapment avoidance for the Cortez Island Fire Department, offering the wood chipping driveway service again, developing fire hearts, fire smart specific neighborhoods plan, and then conducting a study about what could be done to enhance or promote more water availability to provide fire uh, structure protection on Cortez Island, such as what would it cost and what would key locations be to put water reservoirs and holding tanks on the island. And, of course, worked with Market and Community Forest very closely with this application, and it has its full endorsement and support. And if you're asking why are we choosing those three areas that we're choosing, well, we already have the preliminary report back from VA Blackwell, who's updating the wildfire protection plan and one of the key components of that plan is mapping out the forest risk on the landscape of here are your high hazard areas that are either owned by the local government the first nation or crown land which are available for treatment funding the treatment funding through the province is not available to target on private private property we have to hope that those homeowners will undertake 
the principles themselves. And I'm also working with Tina at Kahoos First Nation to prepare an application on their behalf. So a lot of good things coming in, and it's been really nice that the province has recognized the how how much risk regional districts are at because of our wide size. So for the past three years, this grant has always been whether you're First Nation, local government, regional district, you can apply for $25,000, uh, and that's it. And twenty-five grand for, you know, divided by our four electoral areas, it can dry up pretty quickly. And now that regional districts can apply for that $50,000 base plus $50,000 per electoral area, I mean, that's almost a one, that's basically a 100% increase in what we can apply for and accomplish. Uh, that is truly good news. And so can you lay out a little bit more, um, because I know that uh, like Mark Lombard is listening right now who helps um, to manage our community forest, uh, um, which is I my understanding is the management body, our community management body for the crown lands here. So um, we're going to be really excited about this grant, I have to imagine, on Cortez. Um, I bet Quadra also is going to be really excited about this. So, um, so uh, I'm assuming that what we heard from um, Deborah uh, the Zimanek, the forest technician, that that is a really good first start, that having some, uh, having had a scientist come and look at sort of what is, are the first level of things that need to be dealt with on this island is the beginning of getting some money like that. Um, is, is that is that the case? Is, are, is this the pathway? What is the pathway, I guess I'm saying, to get funding and to get, um, and how do we as a community get kind of geared up to be ready for um, provincial or federal funding? Oh, that, that's a good question. Uh, and one area that I forgot to mention was a couple hectares by the recycling center that we were going to target as well. I mean, really, we're well on the way in the process. So I've been engaging our Cortez Island emergency committee throughout putting this grant and the updated wildfire and evacuation plan together a lot of the items that i am going for in this grant were based off of the survey the 70 surveys responses that i've gotten so that i've gotten back from the community so far about their thoughts on wildfire and evacuation so I, a lot of people have expressed concern about the carrington area it also correlated with the mapping provided by Deborah that there's this 11 hectare pocket that should be applied to treatment. So I look at that and say, this is what the professional recommends. This is what the community is interested in. It goes hand in hand. Uh, a lot of people expressed concern about the ability to provide structure protection because of limited water supply and the grant allows for that type of study to be done. So it just have so happened that we were undertaking this survey at the time the grant was coming out. But what I really want to throw out there is, how do I say this nicely? I'm almost disappointed about the strong feelings that the community has on this and what I read in the survey and that it took this mass mail out for them to bring this to my attention in that it, I am your public servant. I'm supposed to be working with you guys and girls as a community as a whole on this. I, I would love to see more 
engagement and a stronger relationship with the residents of Cortez Island during regular times. These should be items that people are just calling up or emailing me to tell me about. It doesn't always mean that there's something in the budget to devote to it. It doesn't always mean that there's something to happen right away. But until the community lets me know about it or screams it at me, it's not so much on the radar or it has more of a chance of flying underneath the radar. So I'm hoping that this is just, you know, a first step in a in a much larger and sustainable, bigger piece of engagement in that relationship building between myself and the community. And then just so we are clear, this first grant would only develop prescriptions for those areas. So no work would be done. The prescription just outlines kind of what Don already alluded to is what needs to be done to make this area safer? Does that mean a prescribed burn? Does that mean removing ladder fuel? Does that mean removing vegetation along the floor? And we take that. So think about the prescription as a roadmap, a pathway, a way of getting there. And so we get that map. We apply for the grant the next time around. And from there, we hopefully get the funding to actually do and undertake the work. I now have so many questions for you. Um, Go ahead. I'm here all day. (laughs) Eventually, they'll probably kick me off the air, though they are very kind here at Cortez Community Radio. Um, So is there, once we get this prescription, um, which I feel really excited after talking to you and Donna, because I feel like, wow, thanks to, um, you know, thanks to our community forest and the Clahoose, we're really, we're we're really ahead of the game in some ways. So once we get this prescription, like, let's just say we apply for this grant that you were just talking about, we get... um, uh, a prescription is there money then to help us execute to do the work yes yes to do the work and that and that would happen next time around okay and then um the uh and so and what we're doing right now already is uh, by um having this sort of community forest representation by working with you, by doing these surveys, by getting the prescription uh, written by um, professionals, this is the kind of work that we need to do in order to then um, be uh, eligible for the money uh, to, to actually do the work. Is that right? Um, so the, the first step to be for a community to be eligible to this grant is to have an updated community wildfire protection plan, which is what VA Blackwell is in the process of doing, uh, which was a joint application last year between the, with the regional district and Clahoos First Nation. So we've already satisfied that prerequisite of we have the plan, and the plan provides us with tons of recommendations that we can do from education, from training, from uh, fuel reduction, that what we can do to Cortez Island to do to reduce the risk. We then take that plan and apply for the, the upcoming grants to do the prescription this year, do the demonstration project next year. But one thing that I, I have to throw out there, just because it, it really resonated in the emails back and forth when you kept asking me, can we do this? Can we have this? Why isn't this done? Et cetera, et cetera. 
I, I want to stress to the people, and please don't come after me with a pitchfork on this one here, but Cortez Island can have anything it wants for wildfire risk reduction if you're willing to pay for it. Under the system right now, we are totally reliant on these grants from the Munibusini municipalities. But if the residents of Cortez Island rallied together and submitted a petition that then said, we should have this wood chipping service once a year so that we always know that it's happening, well, then the regional district can investigate the feasibility and possibility of making that an annual service that's funded through taxpayer requisition instead of the grant. So I, I just want to remind the people out that that it's all about the level of service and the acceptable risk as you prefer, as you foresee it. And that's why it's great that with this grant, regional districts can now get 250 grand instead of the regular 25. Um, thank you. You've made that really clear. And then this, I think, leads really nicely to the survey, um, uh-huh. because I I do think this is one. I'm. Uh, we talked a little bit about this because when we started this conversation to lead up to this radio show, I had a lot of questions about yeah, can we do this and how do we do this and and that were basically came down to like the different levels of government. Who do we? Who's our partners on this and how do we begin to organize ourselves in an effective way? We're a small community and we have to come together effectively if we want to you know use our sort of minimal resources. And the survey is just seems like such a great tool for this. So can you talk a little bit more about what this survey? is and then you alluded to um some of the responses so can you talk a little bit about um for people who who have not filled out the survey where they can find one and why um uh yeah and and sort of how we can be in better communication with you so we don't have to wait for you to come and ask us all the time what we need all great questions but I have to ask you a question about something you just said. Oh, okay. Why would you define Cortez Island as having minimal resources? Because I would argue the exact opposite, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts. (laughs) Wow, I'm really not used to uh, having the um, attention turned on on me. Um, I think this is... I'd like to... um, yeah, I think that, you, I, I mean, I, I think maybe I hear what you're saying. Like, we clearly are a super lucky island with lots of um, potential. Um, and I guess sometimes I think because we're small and we don't have our own municipality that we are maybe feel or sometimes seem to be underrepresented, but or... Um, not have a way of having our voices or our particular needs heard. But um, but I like the idea that I could be wrong. Okay, because I, I, I would argue against that. So you, Cortez Island, you have one of the best volunteer fire departments that I've ever worked with for your size. A lot of good members, solid chief, lots of training going on there. People often think that it's it's money and it's 
equipment and access to that, you know, those type of logistics that really determines the outcome and the response and the recovery. And I'm not discounting the importance of that, but you're a small island community that's very prepared. You have a lot of food on hand. You're used to the rural lifestyle. You're not uh, as pampered and easily distraught as the urban folks. That is an incredible level of resilience. Numerous studies have shown that recovering from a disaster, whether it's earthquake, wildfire, whatever, that the, the social capital piece, the knowing your neighbors and being able to put names to faces and all those pre-established community relationships, those are, that capital is more important than any type of access to resources or funding for the long term. So I would argue that Cortez Island is very prepared to handle an emergency or disaster. And when we think about a disaster, and I will get to your questions, I promise, um, but when we think about a disaster, you really have to let the whole concept of a tight-knit, well-organized, central coordinating body go. You mentioned, and, and I really appreciate that you paid homage to 9-11 at the beginning of this broadcast. So thank you for that. It's, it's a very emotional day for all of us that are involved in this field. I still remember every second of 9-11 like it was yesterday. But to use 9-11 as an example, civilian mariners, you know, commercial watercraft operators, they evacuated hundreds of thousands of people from the lower Manhattan area as the towers were coming down. It, it was an evacuate compared to the Dunkirk evacuation in terms of resources involved and who's moving where and people getting on ships. There was no level of government. There was no central coordinating body that was telling these mariners to do that or who, who to take and where to go. That type of emergent community behavior is always something that we see happen during a disaster where communities step up to fill the gaps that the government can't because the central coordinating body is just overwhelmed with so much going on and the, and the resource strength. And this isn't specific to the regional district. Like that is very, the, the very definition of a disaster is it is a social event that overwhelms our capacity to respond and the volunteer emergent community organizations step up to fill that gap. And I would, I could just really see that happening on Cortez because you are such a tight knit community with that social capital. So I would completely argue against that you're a minimally resourced community. When we look at all the factors that are hard to quantify or put a monetary value on. What do you think of that? Love it. I <laughs> I feel so good about myself and uh, what I do when you say that. What a, I mean, it's true. We are an amazing community and people, um, it's why I love living here is because you actually need to know your neighbors um, to live here just in, just in an ordinary winter. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, I, I'm not trying to get so off track here, but I remember during the big windstorm, oh, it been almost two years or so ago now, Main Road, our Minister of Transportation called me and said, Sean, just so you know, we're aware of some, tree, some trees that are down and crossing over the roads on Cortez Island. We're sending a crew out there to go get them, to which I informed, well, you don't really need to send a crew. They'll be gone by the time you get there. And they kind of laughed and hung up, and they called me back a couple hours later. Like, Those trees were gone by the time we got there. I said, yeah, the locals went out with chainsaws and bucked them up. They're like, the trees over, trees over the road, that's free firewood. What did you think was going to happen, right? Like, they, you, the Cortez Islanders, you're not always looking for that central coordinating body to take care of you. So I just wanted to throw in that, that funny Cortez-specific story there. But how about we get back to that original question? And so I am not lucky enough to live on Cortez Island and be part of that permanent community. And as much as I love to come out and visit and interact with the residents, I don't have the degree of local knowledge that you all do. And that is what I'm really trying to tap into for both this wildfire plan that we're contracting BA Blackwell to do and the evacuation plan, which isn't being done through a contract. I'm doing it in-house. The last plan, nobody from, this was before my tenure, but nobody from Cortez Island was really consulted in in the zones and the maps and how everything was put together. So I really wanted to see that different this time around because the, the map and the plan, it has to be tailored to the local specific and it has to make sense and resonate to the resident there. So the survey was mailed out a couple of weeks ago now. If you're listening and you didn't get it, please call me at 250-830-6702 or scoopman at srd.ca. That's Sierra, Kilo, Oscar, Oscar, Papa, Mike, Alpha, November at Sierra, Romeo, Delta, dot Charlie, Alpha, and I'll resend it to you. It's also available on the SRD website at Cortez slash evacuation slash survey. And I've received about 70, uh, 70 responses so far. We have it live until September 30th. Ideally, I'd love to double that. But even receiving 70 is eight more than I received when I surveyed Cortez Island about their household level of preparedness about three years ago. So I've already seen a better turnout in that. And just, uh, like you said, addressing those concerns and knowing that the residents are also concerned about the Carrington area, and that is an area that they would support the regional district applying for funds to do that fuel management prescription, uh, having a better idea of who may need help in the event of an evacuation, how many pets may be involved and of course you know these things change over time one person buys a cat and already our statistics in the plan are out of date you know the plan is always changing adapting having to be flexible but we're really trying to make it local specific by involving the Cortez Island Emergency Preparedness Committee and reaching out to the Harbor Authority knowing the amount of footage that's available at all the docks if those had to be used. Keeping in mind, 
very the most likely scenario is a small scale evacuation of a couple households and everybody gets to stay on island. But you all pay me to look at what if it's what's happening in San Francisco right now, which looks like something out of a year 2100 apocalyptic novel. So I prepare for those very low probability but very high damaging events. So the plan will look at what if we cannot get anyone to the ferry? What if it's Coast Guarding BC search and, and Camel River search and rescue that are going to have to go around and search beaches? What are some of the key beaches that people may go to if people do have to evacuate in their personal boat? Where are they? Have they thought about where they're going to head to? Are they heading to Campbell River? Are they heading to Lund? And it just helps us. We always want to be able to track the people that are leaving an evacuation area to make to let them know that they're eligible for emergency support services and to ensure that they got out safe. Because the very first principle of our BC emergency management system is to protect for the health and safety of all volunteers. Our second principle is to save lives. Um, Sean, I um, and I, if this seems like it could be a convenient time for you, I'd love to loop in um, Mark Lombard uh, for a minute or two. We have him available to us just for the next couple minutes. And um, and just as a reminder, Mark Lombard, I know you know him because you've worked with him on our community forests and trying to come up with a, 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 a useful community plan as you were talking about. And if you're willing, I'd like to try to do something that I've never done before. Um, but every show I like to do something really crazy. Uh, and so I'm going to see if I can call him on my cell phone so that I don't have to hang up with you. We only have one line into the studio. Sean's on it. And my thought is, what if we could just call Mark Lombard right now on my phone and get him on the radio at the same time so we could so we can ask him a little bit more about what's going on in the community forest right now and, um, and what kind of additional funding they're looking at to prepare our public lands um, to be more fire smart. What do you think? Sounds like a potential party. Let's do it. <laughs> it's it's a COVID-friendly party. None of us breathing the same air and all of us uh, over the airwaves at the same time. So now the question is, can I um, speak and dial Mark's number and then can we hear him? Let's see what happens. This It could be interesting. Okay. Um, Hi. I I have no idea whether anybody else can hear you, but I can hear you. Hi, Sean. Sean, can you hear Mark? I hear a faint whisper. I'm sorry. Oh, man. Let's see. Um, hmm. Hold on. Hold on, Mark. Can I hear you now? Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Let's, I, I, let's just assume that the radio people can hear you, too. Um, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what our community forest is? Sure. The community forest is, uh, is all of the 
forest lands that are crown land on Cortez Island, and it's administered jointly between the Kahoot First Nation and the Cortez Community Forest Cooperative. The, the since 2013, and we've been operational on the island since about 2015. And it's it's actually really exciting to hear from Sean and from Donna and Deborah about all the things that are happening. And we've been we started working with Sean last year and Deborah this year. And uh, there's another program that was announced in the last uh, week or so for the Ministry of Forest, and it's for the Sunshine Coast Timber Supply Area, which we're a part of. And it's a wildfire uh, risk reduction program, and we're looking at applying for funding from that pool of funding as well. And really, as an organization, we're, we're both new at, at managing the license, but we're also new at looking at how to do wildfire risk, risk reduction and planning. We've started the planning now. The next step is to get some prescription funding, which Sean spoke about. He spoke about the Carrington area and about the, the recycling center and about the Squirrel Cove area, which are all parts of the community forest, and we're working on that with Sean, and I'm looking forward to speaking with Sean and potentially Donna and Deborah in the next couple of weeks about this new program that's funded through the Community Resilience Investments Program, and it's called the Wildfire Risk Reduction Program, and it's a new thing for our area of the coast. Um, can you hear me, Mark? I can. Okay, great. Uh, so this is, it's so exciting to see how um, I feel like ahead of the game we are here. Um, can you talk a little bit, uh, when Donna was talking, she was um, asking us a little bit about what the purpose of our community forest public lands are. Like we're helping oversee the management to what end? Well, I, it's always interesting when you hear different people speak about the community forest program. Um, our understanding is that the community forest ha is meant to comply with the regulations set by the provincial government for community forests. There are nine criteria there. It's about local economic development. It's about managing the resource that has, is defined as a public resource. And there are several other criteria, but basically the community forest licensees, as they're called, have a responsibility to harvest timber and to conduct silviculture operations and tend the forest. And on Cortez, there's a, a high value place on conservation forestry and on ecological and biodiversity planning. And uh, yeah, and maybe I'll just leave it there for, this, for that question. Uh, thank you. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time on such short notice, uh, Mark, to tune in. And I know that you are also uh, listening as much as you can while you're also trying to catch a ferry. So if we have other questions, um, I am hoping you'd be okay with me sending them your way. Sure. I can stay on the line or I can just keep listening and whatever you would like. Um, okay, well, I'll probably take you off the line, um, or but yeah, keep listening if you can, and we will stay in touch. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us. Thanks, Manda. Thanks very much, Sean, and thanks, Donna and Deborah as well. Sean, I don't know if you got you could hear any of that. Could you? A little bit. Um, I feel like it was still mostly a success because I think I heard it and I think the people listening and basically what uh, Mark was telling us a little bit more about was our community forest and um, the role of that forest and then 
the, that there's another grant that they're looking to apply for right now, which is a wildfire risk reduction um, funding, and how they've just begun to kind of uh, kind of understand what it means um, as a community forest and being in this management role to help reduce the risk of wildfire. So um, really great to hear that you are all working together and that we are as a community really are beginning to um, do the hard work of, of working together. Yeah, I'll admit before I came here, I'd never heard of a community forest organization. We didn't have that in the Tri-Cities, but I've had nothing but a great experience working with Mark and the Cortez Community Forest to just have that local knowledge and local input and you know, involving you know, involving the First Nations who have such a close relationship to and spiritual ties to the land. They they're just able to offer such a more in depth and passionate input and feedback on the management than I've seen elsewhere. When you have to talk to a you know the land holding company in Victoria. Mm-hmm. I love that. You alluded to a little bit when you were talking about the survey um, about uh, about being surprised at um, kind of the maybe uh, the intensity of the responses. Um, and I'm wondering if you can give me a couple more examples or ways that you feel like there's things that people could have been sharing sooner that would help you help us. <laughs> um, so can you give us some examples about the kinds of things you want to be hearing sooner and the kinds of things that people are saying in this survey so far? Yeah, um, so what I've seen in the survey so far is most of the people that have replied indicate they have a very strong understanding Sorry about the dog. I have a very strong understanding of those fire smart principles, which I wouldn't say is really a surprise when we did the household preparedness survey back in 2017. Cortezon was one of the highest rated communities that said that they had taken those fire smart, that fire smart checklist and actually walked around their property with it, even just driving around Cortez, I I see a lot of fuel that's been removed from 1.5 meters around a structure, which is a very key component of FireSmart, as well as I see a lot of metal roofs for, you know, an island forested area, which is one of the most key components of FireSmarts. I wouldn't say that there's anything in there that's surprised me, so to speak. A lot of people concerned about the Carrington Cove rave and the risks that that brings, the unattended beach fires and campfires from tourists and visitors during the summer season. But I wouldn't say that's Cortez-specific. We hear that from residents in Area D and Quadra Island as well. But so I wouldn't say it's more so much the content, but just more along the fact that I thought I'd had the type of relationship with Cortez Islanders that they would be engaging me on these type of topics without having to be asked. 
can we use this as a um, another opportunity to to tell us like how to reach out to you? Um, you gave your email and your phone number one time, but if you would give it again, I will also try to make sure that it goes into the program notes from today. But tell like, do you want? I mean. Do you really want people reaching out with the, oh, no, they're going to have another rave kind of questions or, or concerns? Or what kind of things are you hoping that people um, are going to reach out to you to share? Anything and everything that's on their mind, even if they just have questions about what the emergency program does and doesn't do. We offer a free mass notification system called Connect Rocket that you can sign up to receive notifications for. There are 17 different lists that we offer throughout the regional district. Every island has its own list. Every floodplain has its own list. The West Coast has its own list specific for tsunami warnings. Uh, that system will call 300 numbers per minute to landlines, cell phones, as well as a text message. And, of course, the cell phone has to be within a cell phone reception area. Uh, two people on the sur two surveys that I read said they had no idea about how they would be notified if there was a wildfire evacuation. I had thought we'd done a pretty good job of promoting Connect Rocket because we do have about 850 people signed up to receive notifications for the Cortez Island list. I see the promotion at I see the promotional poster at stores on the ferry. So, but just to read a survey that said we don't know this and they didn't provide me with follow-up contact information, unfortunately, but to read a survey saying we have no idea how we're going to be notified, which is one of the most important parts of any hazard. So to read that, have them say that, and just I'm wondering, well, why didn't they just pick up the phone and call me? If you don't know this or if this is something on your mind, please ask. I... Um... I love that. Thank like, you. Like, yeah, you know, I'll throw you under the bus here as well. Look at all the questions that you asked prior to this interview. Why didn't you reach out to me beforehand? I'm I'm laughing in the studio as I'm also eating soup. Uh, <laughs> I've never had a guest who uh, has asked me so many so many questions, but I'm one of those people who I often don't. Uh, you know, like I think about things when I turn my mind to them. And so this would be a perfect example. Um, I start thinking about this because I decide I want to do this radio show for the community. And then I start thinking um, a lot more about the stuff that I feel like many of my neighbors would have just observed already in their lives and already <laughs> done more about or um, would have maybe long time ago realized uh, they had to kind of figure out how all this worked. And that's just sort of the way that I work. So this has been, for me, a wonderful way to both inform myself and then hopefully um, take those people who tend to be uh, a little bit slower to kind of put two and two together and help them also uh, in that same way. Um, but, you know, who knows? Uh, I will say I am signed up for to receive emergency notifications. 
and I have begun to fire smart my house. So um, I'm not entirely behind the game, just sort of. Great. And even just access to resources. A resident called me eight months ago. She doesn't have a computer. She's not online. She heard someone at the market mention the Cortez wildfire plant. She asked me if I'd print her off and mail her a copy. I said, of course. I love it. Um, and that's a, a, a really um, smart idea for people who want to see that online. Where do they go? Oh, uh, srd.ca slash emergency dash management. We have all of our plans up there, floodplain mapping, presentations, the evacuation maps and plans. Uh, pretty much if we have written it, it's on there, you know, minus some of the confidential and, and information that's been taken away. But uh, everything that we do, we try to make inaccessible to the public because the evacuation plan is not very helpful if it just sits on my desk and none of you know what the idea is or that there even is a plan. So what is the basic evacuation plan for for Cortez and is there also one for Quadra and how do those people find theirs? Yeah, so they're on the website hoping to update the Quadra one as well, utilizing a very similar process to what's been done for this one. So why don't I just kind of talk you through the, the chapters in the draft plan. Perfect. Because, because also the, the bit with the plan is every plan should be if we had to bring up six staff members from the city of Courtney to help us with an emergency, they should be able to look at that plan, barely even knowing where Cortez Island is, and be able to run it. It's got to make sense to the lowest common denominator. If it's just reliant on me having to be there and lead it, I could be trapped out in Cayuca while you guys get a wildfire, right? So just wanted to stress that part of it. So, you know, any plan starts about starts with the introduction. And this is the scope of the plan. This is the assumption of the plan. Uh, this is what the plan will cover and what it doesn't cover. And then we go into the community context. So what are the population demographics on Cortez Island? About how much influx of tourists do you get every year? What are the key times of that? And that's where some of the statistics that we collect from the survey will come into handy. Um, how many people throughout the island and what are the statistics per zone of people that may require assistance in an evacuation? How many pets are there? What areas are could be activated for emergency support services if group lodging had to be activated or we were registering people to receive referrals through emergency support services. How does public notification work? It talks about connect rocket and possible use of sirens, and which is traditionally with evacuations, Campbell River Search and Rescue, and the RCMP coordinate the on-the-ground evacuation process. They knock on the door. They make a note of who's there. They give them the evacuation message. There's a colored ribbon that they'll tie at the, well, in Campbell River, they tie it on the door, but on Cortez Island, tie it at the end of the driveway. Uh, every colored 
um, denotes do they need help? Have they already evacuated? Uh, but of course, the on the ground bit, given the size of the driveway and accessibility on Cortez Island, we know that that could take up quite a bit of time, and RCP will have to come over on boats from Quadra Island to start and Campbell River search and rescue same time. So we know that the the traditional methods aren't going to be available on Cortez Island right away. Uh, then we talked about the BC Ferry evacuation part in, during the evacuation. And now we st- well, this is where we really start to get into that more of a worst-case, bigger island-wide scenario. Because like I said, our most likely scenario is we take, you know, take, let's say, three, there's a fire around three homes, we draw a line around an evacuation area, we always try to make it bigger rather than smaller in case the fire spreads when we declare a local state of emergency, and also because uh, most people, if they have what's called displacement insurance under their homeowner policy, that uh, policy doesn't kick into place unless there's a state of local emergency declared on your home. And if there is that state of local emergency and you have a displacement insurance, that means that your insurance company will cover all of your out-of-pocket expenses for the cost of being evacuated, your hotel cost, additional food, stuff like that. So, and we make that decision based on recommendations from the fire department, from BC Wildfire, from Environment Canada. Here's the status of the fire. Here's what it's burning. Here's how big it's getting. Here's the wind direction. Here's the heat for the next couple of days. So, really trying to make that prediction of where the fire could go. And even looking at are the homes in the area fire smart? Have there been fuel mitigation activities? And kind of what Donna was alluding to is what is the propensity and possibility for that fire to spread and then we register those people with emergency support services on the island they stay in commercial accommodation for a couple days uh, or a group lodging facility if the covid restrictions have been lifted or they build with their friends and through the vouchers of emergency support services get three days to a week of support that so that is our more likely scenario now we're going to start to transition into the much bigger piece so we want tourists to get off the island during an evacuation alert stage the second that there's a hazard if you don't live here go home well you don't got to go home but you can't stay here as you're leaving the bar type of thing right we want anybody with that may take more time to evacuate if you have a lot of animals, if you have livestock, if you have mobility issues, ideally please get off the island or out of the hazard zone during that evacuation alert stage. And in an ideal scenario, people are just driving onto the ferry and we're taking you off that way. But once we reach that trigger point of mass evacuation, well, cars are no longer allowed on the ferry. And that's where we're encouraging people to park at the designated assembly areas throughout the island, carpool to the ferry, so we're not, you know, so the ferry lineup isn't all the way to the co-op, and ideally people can at least park close enough to it, and we're walking people on, and that's where we look at how many people are on Cortez Island at this time, how many people can safely walk on to the ferry under the Transport Canada standards for that vessel, what's their time to 
get them to Quadra? How quickly can we get buses to Quadra to pick them up on that end? Uh, what is the protocol for BC ferries? If, is there a second vessel that they could run on that route and bring in from elsewhere so that we have, we have two ferry services shuttling and running? And then we go and the plan looks at the assembly areas. How big are they? How much how much cars can be parked there? What are some traffic control options for when everybody is descending upon the ferry? Okay, now we have roads that are possibly cut off and people can't get to the ferry. What do harbor evacuations look like, especially if we're sending boats to Cortezan? What amount of footage is available at the Seattle Lock, Yacht Club, Gorge Harbor, all those other type of docks? Uh, and moving on to that worst-case scenario, they can't get to the docks, they can't get anywhere. What are some of the more common shorelines that people have access to if we're asking search and rescue the Coast Guard to do a humanitarian search of the area? Uh, how do we record the evacuation, talking about the colors and of uh, the different ribbons and keeping track of everybody at the household. How do we manage the area under the evacuation order? If it is safe to allow people to re-enter and to at least get some supplies that they weren't able to evacuate with, what are, what are the forms that we're going to be using and how does that registration process take place? What are the local island resources that are available? Uh, if does, who has a bobcat if BC Wildfire needs to call upon them because a bobcat on island is quicker than a bobcat off island? Okay, the wildfire is now out. What are some what are some things that we need to look at before we're letting people back in? Do the stores have enough food? Are the roads safe to travel? What does it look like for the long-term recovery and psychosocial planning? And then, of course, our evacuation maps and looking at the key routes in and out of the area, how many people are in the map, how many people reside in each area. Is That's a very brief, high level into an evacuation plan for an island. And um, I think now I feel fairly overwhelmed so um, do we do we have answers to I mean I know some of these like for instance I know that there are uh, kind of muster or assembly areas that have been designated but do we have an answer as to whether for instance BC ferries will be willing and able to lend us a second ferry do, like are these things do we have concrete answers and they live in this plan right now Yes, and we're working on all of that. Uh huh. So that we just have, so everybody knows what their role would be in an evacuation style emergency, and um, and is prepared. Is that sort of the the ultimate idea there? Exactly. And this is back to why I imagine the survey is so important, is so that we begin to see who on the island has boats, who on the island has the bobcat, et cetera. What kind of local resources are going to be available for um, planning both evacuation, but also how we're going to deal with whatever the hazard that is causing us to evacuate is. Is that more or less right? There you go. You can do my job now. Yeah, <laughs> that would be really scary. <laughs> Nobody wants me doing that. Um, why, why is it scary? 
<laughs> well, you you remember how many um, uh, not perfectly intelligent questions I had at the, at the beginning of this whole process. So you've just done a really good job of helping me come along to the point where I can ask slightly better questions now. No, they're not. I mean, they, were, they would have only been unintelligent questions if you never asked me. Oh, thanks. You know what, you know what I mean? Um, so you forgive me for waiting uh, this many years for asking you. It, it is what it is. It got out there, right? I, I work for a government. I, I'm used to a snail's pace, I guess, and sometimes. Um, but you, 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 you mentioned an interesting word in there, and I get that a lot. You know, um, So if you haven't yet... YouTube San Francisco Blade Runner just to see the smoke that is there right now. Someone did, they took some drone footage of San Francisco and put the intro to Blade Runner over it. And it's really just this eerie post apocalyptic scene that you think is out of a sci fi movie. But no, it was just Los Angeles or it was just San Francisco two days ago. But you know what you said? I do hear that from others is oh you plan for earthquakes and wildfire and this this and that that must be a very scary job and i say no absolutely not wildfires earthquakes nuclear bombs those don't terrify me those aren't scary at all but they're they're natural processes of the planet earth and we have put ourselves at risk of those threats by building close to them. And there's a whole, you know, the whole social sociology field of that, that we don't have time to get into. But I'll ask you, what do you think is the number one thing, really the only thing about my job that scares me? Well, I feel like it would be really scary to be in your job and feel like, um, that, uh, people weren't listening or weren't participating and therefore then when a wildfire comes and a place is overcome with smoke or whatever that you can't help get people to safety that's a that's a good halfway answer there <laughs> I, I put in 40 hours a week for four electoral areas uh, helping out eight, the eight first nations this and the city of campbell river and four villages I will quit my job tomorrow if I wake up and all the Cortez Island Emergency Support Services volunteers have left. If the Cortez Island Emergency Radio volunteers have left. If the Cortez Island Volunteer Fire Department quits. Because volunteers are the bread and butter of a successful emergency program. Like, I cannot thank those volunteers with fire, radio, ESS enough for what they they do for the community. Without them, my, my job is nothing. There's honestly no point in having somebody in my role unless there's the volunteers and first responders on the ground to be part of that community. So... You know, for those that are looking to get more involved, give me a call and email me about emergency support services and how you can volunteer for that. 
that on Cortez Island. We only have about 10 members on that team right now. We only have two radio volunteers. We're, we're always looking for more people to participate in the structure and gain the knowledge, skills, and abilities to help out their community. Uh, did you hear that, folks? Um, I feel like what a uh, useful and uh, way to volunteer in the community that lots of people can um, be involved with. Ken, um, I want to ask you about one of my big fears, which is, and how we, like, at what point do we evacuate and what point we don't? So one of the things that I kind of was ill-prepared to understand until I moved to BC and particularly to this island was the, uh, the major and kind of widespread effects of smoke. So, um, and I think everybody who lives on this island um, ha- can be, you know, relatively afraid at this point of smoke because of how far it can travel and then how deadly it can be. So if the whole... You know, if if we were to not have our own fire event, but to be basically smoked out, is that a thing that could happen? And is that something we can evacuate from? That, that's a, almost a whole another two-hour conversation in itself where we should really be bringing in public health to the table. Uh, one thing that I will say to that is there were a lot of, not a lot, there were a handful of communities that self-evacuated because of the smoke during the 2017 fires, and studies showed for the most part they would have actually been better had they stayed in place indoors in their own home. Because when you are evacuating, because so one thing I'll say, you can you can leave the island at any point in time if you want. If there is, you know, the mosquitoes get bad, you can go up to Prince George for all I care. But if you say evacuation, meaning a state of local emergency and eligible for support under emergency support services and or the Red Cross, uh, no, that is not usually something that's traditionally offered because of smoke except in very specific circumstances. And I can send you some reports on this as well, because most of the time people that leave to go somewhere are exposing themselves to more smoke than they would have had they just stayed in place. Uh, that's, that's really interesting, and that leads to the next question. So then what are the evacuable hazards that we might face here uh, on Cortez versus the ones that we will um, withstand in place? Oh, good question. So, that, and that's also an important part for the public and to understand is there are events that we want the public to evacuate from, and that, that means leave. There's a dangerous pocket here. We want you to move safely to this not dangerous pocket here. And so some conditions that have to be in place for that. Well, is transportation available and safe? Is the receiving area safe? Does the receiving area have the services and capacity to absorb all the people that are coming up, i.e. 
if we were going to evacuate all of Campbell River, do you think we're going to send them to Courtney or Sayward? I'll let you figure that one out for yourself. Uh, and then there's events where we want people to shelter in place. So most severe uh, windstorms, once they have hit to, to stay where they are, the roads are dangerous. There's trees coming down. There's power lines coming down. Uh, the windstorm is already widespread for earthquakes, sheltering in place for a long period of time. There's such a widespread damage that it's there's nowhere that's una- nowhere close and reasonable that's unaffected to bring you to. Uh, some has hazardous material events, which we don't have a lot of in the SRD because we're not a very industrious area, but there's some chemicals when they leak, we evacuate areas. There's other chemicals where we say, we'll just stay where you're at and close your doors. So it's really about the size and magnitude and transportation routes available to people. And also, of course, the the onset and ability to deliver that warning. If we know that we haven't had a hurricane in, in Vancouver Island since what was Hurricane Frida, 64 or 69, if we know five days that there's a very strong chance of a class three to five hurricane coming through the Discovery Islands area, yeah, we're going to give you advance notice to please evacuate, please head to this area that isn't going to be hit and register with emergency support services. If all of a sudden a free-to-like event comes in within the next hour, you got to shelter in place because it's too dangerous to go anywhere. So this um, is a great time to remind us how we are going to find out. If you, if you do not have a smartphone and you're not signed up, well, actually, you don't have to have a smartphone, right? People can sign up to get um, emergency updates on their home phone as well as on a mobile phone. Is that right? Right. Uh, so we're at three minutes. Are we going to get kicked off, or can I still go for a bit? You, we, we have to start stop at three, so give us okay. the short answer of how we get signed up. The, the federal government, uh, federal and provincial government, have a system called Alert Ready. And Alert Ready delivers push notifications to every mobile device in a given area that is, has the latest network connected to an LTE network at the time, blah, blah, blah. So when you see those messages from Alert Ready being tested, and Alert Ready will also go to televisions and radio, that is a senior level of government initiative that local governments have no control over. Some cell phones may get it, some may not. It depends if you meet that bullet point. The latest, it's the latest technology connected to an LT network at the time, etc. Connect Rocket, no matter how old your cell phone is, whether it's connected to a network or not at the time, if you have signed up to receive notifications and you are in a cell phone reception area and we have access to the internet to actually be able to access the system and send out the notifications, you will get that message. And that was the main that we went with rocket is a lot of the notification systems that are out there these days don't do landlines anymore. But we know that in the regional district, a lot of people don't have cell phones because our cell coverage isn't the greatest. So that landline uh, portion was a great bit of that. Uh, how else will people get notified? There's a, uh, a neighborhood up in Granite Bay, which is North Quadra Island. They carry walkie-talkies with them all summer so that if 
One of them gets a message of evacuation. They just quickly walkie-talkie their whole entire neighborhood, and they do regular walkie-talkie nets. So that's where they've taken it upon themselves to organize as a neighborhood, recognizing that they're in an area without cell phone reception in a remote area to better increase the safety and notification potential of their fellow neighbors. And um, I and and just going to also say that the radio station, uh, as you mentioned, is going to get those alerts and is a great place to tune in um, if you are worried about uh, cell phone access um, and that kind of connectivity. And just a so plug for the radio. <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean Cortez Community Radio. We have a have a great relationship with them. A great bunch of people. So Connect Rocket also has an internal piece to it, a list that I program. So I program all the emergency support service volunteers in there in case we need to dispatch them. I also have programmed a list specifically for Spirit FM, Code FM, Today FM, and Cortez Community Radio so that I can deliver them a message right away saying, please stop your regular programming right now and start airing this message. So it's not just about being able to answer your phone. We do try to get the message to people from as many different ways through every mechanism that we can. Thank you so much, Sean, for being here with us today. Uh, You've been listening to Sean Koopman from the Strathcona Regional District. We are at our time, and I didn't leave any time for questions and answers, but I have Sean Donna, and even Mark Lombard, all standing by and willing to answer your questions. So once we're off the air, you're welcome to, in the next few minutes, to call me at 250-935-0200, and I'll get your questions answered. Or you can always email me at the letter U at folkU, that's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A, and I'll get one of these experts to help you get answers to your questions. And as we already heard from Sean, he wants to hear from you even when it's not an emergency. So I will make sure in the program notes that you have his contact again. Thank you, all of you, uh, guests and listeners, for tuning in to another edition of Folk You Radio. You can tune in anytime to new ideas or past classes and podcasts by visiting folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folku is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, CortezRadio.ca. And this episode was done in cooperation and collaboration with Cortez Currents on the World Wide Web at CortezCurrents.ca. Thank you, neighbor.